0: I want to start this morning with my goal is to get you to feel something. I want I want you to feel something. And in order to do that, I want to start off with about the first two minutes, some comments about American politics. And we can't boo, we can't clap, we can't cheer. We can't poke. We can't prod. In fact, just don't breathe for the next two minutes. Just, just hold your breath, if you would, for the next two minutes. But I want you to feel something. Because the last three months, you have felt something, if you're remotely at all familiar with what's going on in American politics. doesn't matter which party. But every night on the news... You either feel something good or you feel something bad or you really like him or you don't like her or you like her or you don't like them. or Every night there's some kind of a response. But I'm here to tell you it pales in comparison to the political culture and climate that took place when Jesus walked downtown Main Street in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And there's drama in American politics. I mean, if you, again, if you're watching the news, if you're remotely familiar with what's going on, You'll see there's at least two candidates right now, don't breathe, just don't say a word, who have really stirred the pot. I'm not saying you agree with them, I'm not saying you like them, maybe they're your person, but, but you got to admit, whether you like them or not, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders have stirred the pot. They've added drama to American politics the last several months, haven't they? Jesus, I said, don't breathe. (laughs) Jesus of Nazareth amped that up about 15 times. The political culture on Palm Sunday in that day, in that age, where the messianic expectations were so high. Take your visceral feelings you've had, I like him, I don't like him, and amp that up about 15 times. That's the culture that was taking place in Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. Now, I want you to picture this. For about 90 years, the Jewish people were slaves to the Romans. For about 90 years, every time the Passover came around, there were these high messianic expectations that finally maybe we'll get a savior. Now, it wasn't to be saved from our sins. It was a Savior who would save us from the Romans. We want a zealot. We want a lieutenant colonel. We want a general. We want some, somebody that will ha- have a coup attempt and get rid of all the Romans. And so the Messianic expectations were so high during Passover that Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, would always take off from his quarters in a place called Caesarea Maritimes, a beautiful place along the coast. And if you go to Israel with us, you'll see it. it's the first stop on the tour. And what what Pontius Pilate does is Pontius Pilate takes off from Caesarea Maritime, basically it's his beach house, and he goes up the coastline, and then he comes into the city of Jerusalem to make sure that there's Roman power so that nobody's going to try a coup attempt. And you've got to see this. From the west into Jerusalem, right before the Passover, here comes Pontius Pilate on a stallion with about 500 soldiers and their spears and their shields are shimmering. And you can just hear the click, 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 click click of their hooves hitting the limestone. And it's the power of Rome and it's the it's the incredible prestige of Rome. And then off to the east, nobody's over here watching them. Nobody's watching the power of Rome. Everybody's over to the east of the city. And the east of the city, there's a lowly Jewish carpenter riding a donkey. And the hundreds of thousands of people are east of the city, and they're taking off their cloaks and they're making a bee line right down Main Street for him to walk on coming into Jerusalem toward the temple. And they're cutting down palm branches. And they're waving these palm branches. And they're begging Jesus and they're shouting, and you know what they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they're saying basically, save us, save us now. And the whole city is in such a jacked up, amped up roar that the Romans have to keep coming in to make sure there's not a coup attempt. Now, at this moment, you can see the greatness of Rome. And you can feel the Jewish people demanding greatness. And then here comes Jesus, and he demonstrates greatness. Now, every one of us in this room, we want to be great. We all want to be great. Nobody woke up this morning and said, I want to be a loser. I want to be a loser today. This Palm Sunday is... Nobody in this room has ever had dreams of being a loser. Unless it was losing weight or something. Like the greatest loser. But nobody has a dream of that, right? Your dream is you want to be great at your work. You want to have great looks. You want to have a great education. You want to have great marriage. You want to have great kids. You want to have great parents. You want to have great friendships. Everybody in the room desires... Greatness. Now, where does that come from? It comes from your Heavenly Father. It comes from the Garden of Eden. In that Garden of Eden, there was an incredible greatness. There was great looks, great marriage, great communication, great food. They had had a great, didn't they? All that within the Garden was great, great, great. And every one of us in this room, we desire greatness. The question is... How do we define greatness? What's the measuring stick for greatness? Well, Jesus measured greatness differently than anybody else. There was no other dictator, king, ruler who ever measured greatness like Jesus. Instead of asking people to feed him, he fed the people. Instead of asking people to entertain him, he taught and mentored and trained the people. Instead of getting all the people to help him, he then actually looked for opportunities on how he could help other people. You've never met anybody like Jesus. And he measures greatness differently than anybody else in the entire world. Last week was the Gospel of Matthew. And the purpose of Matthew was to show that Jesus is this messianic king to the Jews. But the purpose of the Gospel of Mark, Mark is to communicate to us that Jesus is a servant. He came to serve his people. And in the Gospel of Mark this week, as you read it, because I know you're going to read it, as you read it this week, you're going to find that Jesus has more stories in the Gospel of Mark. If you don't know the stories of Jesus, Mark's a good one to camp out in. Because Mark tells more stories than all the other Gospels, and, and, he, and they're short. And they're like the Reader's Digest version, but he tells story after story after story. And he uses the little Greek word, Kai, which is like K-A-I, which is just the Greek word, and. And it's like, and Jesus did this, and he did this, and he did And you'll just find these stories are just rambling through the Gospel of Mark because he, he tells all these stories. But in each one of these stories, Jesus came to serve. Chapter 1, he's... Healing a guy with leprosy. In chapter 2, the story's about a man with a shriveled, paralyzed hand. In chapter 3, he he communicates to the twelve, this is what you're going to do, this is who you are. Chapter 4, he teaches the multitudes and the masses. Chapter 5, he raises a little girl from the dead. Each one of the chapters in the Gospel of Mark has Jesus giving his life away. How do you measure greatness? Because there's not a man, there's not a woman in this room that doesn't want to be great. I want to be great. You want to be great. How do we measure greatness? So I've got a chart in your bulletin that you can fill in. There's lots of blanks to fill in. And I want to show us just a a slice uh, in about three different chapters of what Jesus does and um, you kind of got to pay attention. You got to sit up straight and pay attention to this chart or you will get lost. But it worked in the first hour and you're a little bit more awake than they are. So let's give it a try. OK, so here's here's if you got a bulletin, you need a bulletin for this. If You don't have a bulletin. I don't know what to tell you. Um, maybe put this on the website or something. But anyway, here we go. And what we're going to do is we're going to go A, B and C and then one, one, one and then two, two, two and then three, three, three. Got it? All right, here we go. I'll help you with this. All right, here we go. First of all, at the top, three times Jesus predicts. He predicts his death. Three different occasions. He wants everybody to understand who he is and why he came. Go to B. Number B. In each time, the disciples respond with pride and misunderstanding. All three times, Jesus tells them, "I'm going to die." And they respond with pride and misunderstanding. I'm going to die. And they respond with pride and misunderstanding. I'm going to die. And they respond with pride and misunderstanding. Go to C. So after they respond with pride and misunderstanding, Jesus follows with teaching about servanthood and cross bearing. He follows with servanthood and cross bearing. This is how Jesus defines greatness. Go back up to A if you would. So here's the first time we're going to see it now. It's called the first passion prediction, and that just means I'm I'm describing my death. And so we'll, let's read uh, chapter 8, verse 31 through 32. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. We'll talk about that what next week? Three days, right? Three days. I'm going to rise again. He predicts this. He would rise again. He spoke plainly about this. All right? So Jesus spoke plainly about this. And look what Peter does. Peter decides to rebuke Jesus. This is awesome. Okay? What made Peter think he should speak at that moment? Have you ever done that? I'll never will forget when Danita gave birth to Erica. And somebody asked Danita, how was the birth? And I thought I should speak at that moment. I, I have... I, I, I have no idea why I thought that was a good idea. <laughs> and I said, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> why? All Danita said was, excuse me? That's all she said. That's all she said. Look what Peter, look what happens in Mark eight thirty-three. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at the, his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. That's pretty intense, isn't it? You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Wow. What a slam. So that, then, then Jesus does this He says, Take up your cross. See number one. Look at our C, far left. He says, Take up your cross. It means it means you're going to change teams. This is what my kingdom's all about. My kingdom is different than every other king's kingdom. So here's what he says in Mark eight thirty four through 38. He calls the crowd. He says, hey, whoever wants to be my disciple, you deny yourself, you take up the cross, you follow me. Because whoever wants to save their life, they're going to lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel, they're going to save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. Wow, what a statement this is. All right, let's go back to our chart. Look at the top, if you would. And we've got now, under A, the second passion prediction. Are you with me on this? Can you, are, we, are we good? Are we so far okay? Second So this is the second time now. So the first time he told him he's going to die, here's the second passion prediction. Mark 9, 31 through 32. He was teaching his disciples. He said to them, Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after, that's next week, right? After three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Wow. So what happens here then? Well, they're going to debate. Look under B number 2. They're going to have a debate. Jesus just tells them, I'm going to die, and all this good stuff about giving up your life. And they have a debate over who is the greatest. Were they tracking with him? No, they weren't tracking with him. Look what they say in Mark 9, 33 through 34. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Everybody wants to be great. That's not a question. The question is, how do you define greatness? Well, look what happens next. So, Jesus says to them, under C, he says, the first shall be last. Every time they respond inappropriately, Jesus comes back with a teaching And clears this up. Let's look at Mark 9, 35-37. Jesus says, sitting down, he called the twelve. He says, guys, let me tell you about my kingdom. My my kingdom's different. Is anyone who wants to be first will be last and servant of all. He took a little child whom he had placed among them. I love this. Jesus uses an innocent child as a sermon prop. Now, how cool is this? Because everybody understood the innocence of a child. He took a little child whom he had placed among them, taking the child in his arms. He said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. In other words, this is what my kingdom is all about. All right, he's going to do it a third time. They're not getting it. So here's the third time, the very top. A, number three, third passion prediction comes from Mark 10, 32 through 34. Here we go. They were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. The disciples were astonished while those who followed him were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and he told them what was going to happen. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests. This is the third time he's telling this. They will condemn him to death, hand him over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked, spit on, flog him. They'll kill him. This is next week, right? Next week. Three days later, he will rise. Now you would think the third time they would get it, right? Wouldn't you think that? All right. Well, here's what happens. The chiefs, uh, they then they didn't want to talk about the chief seats, B number th- number three, the chief seats in the kingdom. Look at that. C, I'm sorry, B three, chief seats in the kingdom. Mark ten thirty five through forty one. So Jesus has to talk about it some more. Here's what he says. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came to him, teacher. They said, We want you to do for us whatever we ask. If you were Jesus at this point, wouldn't you just be shaking your head? How dumb can they be? Let one of us sit at your right, the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm with? We can. Well, you're going to drink the cup I drink, and you're going to be baptized with the baptism I'm with, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. We're going from bad to worse. Nobody's getting it. Nobody's tracking with him. So here's what happens next. Here's what he says. Under C, number three, he talks about servant leadership. This is what my kingdom is about. You take up your cross, the first shall be last, and servant leadership. Look what he says in Mark chapter 10, verse 42. He calls the guys together. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Right? They see all the Romans everywhere. They see the shimmering shields. They hear the horse hoofs. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And then, this is the whole point of the whole story right here. We'll fill in the center of the, right here, let's fill in the, center of the chart. This is why Jesus came. This is Jesus' point. This is why he's trying to communicate an approach to his kingdom that's different than everybody else. He says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, how do you define greatness? Well, at this particular point in the story, I think these guys were fans of Jesus. I'm not sure they were followers of Jesus. Big, big difference. difference. We talked last week about Matthew and everybody in Matthew. Jesus was either nobody or somebody or an everybody, right? Well, today, Jesus is trying to help everybody in this story understand that to be a part of my kingdom and my church, it's not just about being a fan. So I would assume that that probably everybody in this room is a fan of Jesus or you probably wouldn't be here. Maybe a couple of you aren't. Again, maybe you got lost. You thought this was a restaurant. or I don't know. But, but anyway, most of you are here this morning because, because, because you're a fan. But where you want to get to be is you, you really want to get to be the follower. The follower is where you want to get to be. So I thought, what does that look like? What does a fan look like? And what does a follower look like? And so I actually wrote some pieces to this. Let's look at this. See, a fan loves Jesus. But a follower is in love with Jesus. There's a big difference. You can love something, but if you're in love with something, there's a big difference, right? A fan basically says, I have to. I have to go to church. I have to sign up to teach something at church. I have, I have to, you know. But a follower says, I get to worship him. I don't have to come to church. I get to. There's a big difference, Right? A fan says, I'm worried about this life. But a follower says, I'm concerned about the life to come. There's a big difference there. I wouldn't be worried. Jesus says, do not worry about those who can kill the body. Worry about those who can kill the body and the soul. I wouldn't worry about this life. He's saying, worry about the life to come. A fan gives, but a follower is just a giver. A follower just what can I do? What, how can I make a difference? A fan compartmentalizes life. I got a spiritual life. I got a business life. I got a social life. I got an uh, exercise life. But, but a follower, you know, Jesus is my life, he, 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 just, he is a part of my life. What does a fan do? A fan makes money. And a follower, I think, leverages money. Big difference leverages money for the kingdom. A fan will assist, but a follower, hey, I, 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 whatever you need. I'm an assistant. Whatever it is you need, I'm there for you. What does a fan do? A fan prays. Yeah, every, every fan throws up a few prayers, right? Lord, bless me, help me, give me, save me. You know, A fan prays, but a follower is in prayer. Next one's about the Bible. A, a, a fan reads the Bible, but look at that next one follower allows the Bible to read them. I don't think Satan cares that you read the Bible. I think he's terrified when the Bible reads you and you repent and you change and you grow and you move. When the Bible reads you, he is quaking in his boots or sandals or flip flops or whatever he's wearing. Okay. What does a fan do? A fan goes to church, but a follower, a follower is the church. Big, big difference. That, that's really who we are. And so maybe you're like Peter right now. You're not really sure if you want to be the whole follower thing. You got the fan thing down. And so this is what happens. So Peter asks the question. Let's look at the next section of Scripture. Peter asks this question. He says, hey, hey, Jesus. If I become the whole follower thing, you know, what's in it for me? I mean, Peter still's not quite there yet. He's not getting it. Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. Truly, Jesus says, I tell you, no one is left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to. In other words, Peter, don't worry about it. I got you covered. I'm going to take great care of you. Peter, you're going to be blessed. Don't worry about it. And so I, I got just two minutes left. And I want to share this with you. You see, I think this whole message is about an approach. I think what Jesus is trying to communicate is the people in my kingdom have a different approach. So let me break this just as simple as possible. You drive on the church parking lot this morning. You have an approach when you come on the church parking lot. And you see some lady getting out of a Honda Civic with... 17 small children, okay? She's, she's just, they're just peeling out of this Honda Civic. It's an approach. You drive away from her, or you park next to her and say, maybe I should get out of the car. And how, how can I help her? Servanthood is not signing up for a church program or teaching three. Servanthood is an approach to life. Again, you're in the parking lot. You get out of the car. and There's an empty Coke can. And you just leave it, or you pick it up and throw it away. It, servanthood is an approach to life. You come into this room on a Sunday morning, and you see somebody that's not very happy. They just look like you know somebody shot their dog, or they just got baptized in lemon juice, or whatever's wrong with them, right? And so you either you either ignore them, or you go by them and say, "Good morning, God bless you. I hope hope you hope you're doing well." You see, it's an approach to life. You go home today, and you either have everybody around you because you're big and you're bad, and you have everybody around you serving you, or you're serving all the people. How can I help you? What can I do? How can I help you? What difference can I make in your life? That doesn't diminish your leadership or your authority. Jesus was the greatest of all, and he got out a towel and a basin of water, and he washed their feet, for goodness sakes. And He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And He sits at the right hand of God the Father today. How can I go to school and make a difference? How can I go to work tomorrow and make a... It's an approach to life. That's what servanthood is all about. What, what, what's your approach? And how can you grow and change with that? Well, let me share out of chapter 15, this incredible story, how it ends. Noon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine and vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. And it all started on Palm Sunday. It all started with the power of Rome that measured greatness on one side and Jesus of Nazareth coming out of the Mount of Olives from the east into the city and he demonstrated what greatness is all about.